Sagittarian Matters, My Roommate Boundaries, Nicole's Snack Corner, Journalistic Ethics, and Tips for Cartoonists, with my guest, Alary Harris. Stay tuned. Welcome to Nicole's Snack Corner. I'm here to corner you and tell you about all my favorite snacks, from my bag of raisins to your ears. First, a letter. Hi, Nicole, this is Colleen. I tried the prunes and tahini. I didn't like the prunes with tahini, but I loved the prunes with peanut butter. When my wife tried the prunes and tahini, she gasped, I'm mad! Ha ha. Ha ha. Needless to say, she did not care for it. Ha ha. Thanks, Colleen. Uh, If any of you try prunes with tahini, please send me your review and I will read it on the air. It is my favorite snack. Here's something I'm mad about this week, in case you were wondering. That is quinoa appearing in tabbouleh. Now, you all heard Sabrina Jalise call me a cracker last week, and that may be true. From the outside, I may appear as white as snow. However, I grew up in a predominantly Syrian-American household, eating a lot of Middle Eastern food, and so if you fuck with Middle Eastern food, I'm going to fuck with you. I've been going to a tremendous place called Dune here in Los Angeles, and I went out of my way to order tabbouleh, which is an overpriced dish considering it's mostly parsley, and we both know how much parsley costs. Anyway, I got it. It was 75% quinoa, 20% parsley, and then the other stuff. That is inappropriate. I am calling them on their shit. I'm calling anyone. I've seen this at other places. They didn't invent it. Uh, Nobody needed to bring tabbouleh up to speed with the 2000s by adding a protein-packed, complete grain that tastes like dirt to an already delicious Middle Eastern dish. Okay? Leave your quinoa at home. Here's the appropriate ratio for tabbouleh. In my opinion, 75 to 80% parsley. Number one then lemon, then some bulgur wheat, then some mint, and some onions, and some tomatoes. Done. Call it a day. Don't add an acai berry or an ancient grain or a superfood or your bullshit. Keep it simple. And why does that have to cost $7? That's not, that, no one's going to change it for me, but I just want to say. Okay, the other thing is I have PMS, and so hearing Blue Apron ads on my favorite podcasts makes me want to throw myself from a moving vehicle. I don't want to hear sweet RuPaul have to talk about a pork chop with apples and ginger or rice or whatever. Some of my listeners are shut-ins and agoraphobes, and I salute you, but I want to remind you that you can truly order any grocery item, any cookbook, any cooking utensil in the world from the privacy of your bedroom, from a laying down position. You could be face down dictating it to your phone, basically, and have those things appear at your house. I don't know. Some of my best friends are Blue Aprons, you know? I know a lot of people that use Blue Apron, but for some reason hearing people have to, like, barf out the recipe descriptions on podcasts is a little bit too much. Just like when they're like, don't you hate the post office? And my answer is no. It wasn't that hard for me to, like, buy a mattress or send mail or cook food before I listen to podcasts. Anyway, I mean, 
If I get a sponsor for the podcast, you know I'm going to be telling you all about pork chitlins in like five minutes. Just kidding, I wouldn't do that because I love pigs. And now, on to the positive. I made a new wrap this week because I ran out of rice paper and I love making salad rolls. Ran out of rice paper. Had a bunch of vegetables around. Here's what I did. I used a mustard leaf from the farmer's market. Maybe two mustard leaves if the first one has a hole in it. I put some tofu in there with hoisin and sriracha and some blobs of peanut butter because I was too lazy to make peanut sauce. And those are the basics of peanut sauce. I threw in some kimchi. I threw in some green onions. I threw in some more mustard greens, rolled it up, called it a day. It was delicious. It did it for me. I just ate a couple of those and then I was great. So that's my wrap of the day. Um, Lastly, if you are mad at Rachel Maddow for hyping up her tax return pages, I will go in the Thunderdome with you. Let me grab my Nerf bat because I think she's been doing a great job. And apparently I'm so rigid there's not room for more than one opinion. So I'll meet you in the Thunderdome. Let me know when. I'll get my American Gladiators bat and put on my helmet and uh, I'll see you there. Okay, thanks for coming to Nicole's Snack Corner. It was lovely to corner you. And please keep sending me your reviews of prunes dipped in tahini. I'm happy that you haven't all blocked me so far. Goodbye. Larry Harris is a cartoonist, a journalist, and the deputy editor at The Nib. Her comics have been published all over the world, and she has a Master's of Fine Arts from the Center for Cartoon Studies. Larry joined me in my home studio last week to talk about journalism and comics, but most importantly, we discussed the time when we were roommates. Please keep your ears out for the moment when she says Ponyo was her favorite roommate of all time. And if you listen towards the end, you can get some really, really great tips about how to be edited as a cartoonist and how to be professional. You can find Alary at thenib.com. Now please enjoy my talk with Alary Harris. My name is Alary Harris. I'm the deputy editor of The Nib. Alary Harris, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Thanks for having me, Nicole. What's your sign? Pisces. Oh, you're actually much more grounded and able to keep a schedule than any Pisces I know. Yeah, you haven't seen my notebook with how I actually work. Really? <laughs> yeah. I found you to be a very organized person with a lot of follow through. I'm really, I'm really glad that I give that impression. <laughs> but all the women I know who are Pisces are my favorite people. It's hard for me to make personal plans with them, but they're really good at making um, plans in business. Yeah, right? Really? Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that is? Is it like, you know, there's like specific traits or is it, what? what's the story? I don't know. They're they're gifted and they are willing to put the energy into their work. Ah. That they just need to get something out and that's the outlet for it. Yeah. But then maybe they do that so well and so much with so much structure. Yeah. That then they can't be confined in their personal life. <laughs> I, can't, you, I cannot be controlled. Only one thing will, will be kept together. <laughs> do not try to get me to make breakfast plans. Yeah. <laughs> you can show up at my house. If I'm here, we'll hang out. If not, I don't think so. Larry, we used to be roommates. We did. Used to be roommates. Back in the snowy days. In White River Junction, Vermont. Yeah. When you were a student at the Center for Cartoon Studies, and I was a teacher at the Center for Cartoon Studies, and we lived in the same house because no boundaries existed there. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm really glad that we thought this whole thing through before we moved in together. (laughs) I didn't really... Well, the, the teaching thing came up for me kind of at the last minute, and I didn't totally 
understand. I didn't put two and two together. Yeah. That my new roommates were there because they were the exact year of people that I would be teaching. Yeah. Do you remember the conversation we had where I told you my, uh, like, idiosyncrasies in the home? Oh, yeah. We had, like, a Skype video call before you moved in about, like, you know, all the things that we wanted in a housemate and the things that we would not tolerate in a housemate. And then you gave us the same list back. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember what my uh, rules were? Uh, I mostly remember that we should not talk to you in the morning at all um, until you've gotten dressed or put your face on, your eyebrows, put your eyebrows on. (laughs) Nicole does not have eyebrows. It is not time to talk to her. Which, you know, can be difficult because here I just put on eyebrows right before we met up today. Oh, right. So I was unavailable for questioning up until that moment. (laughs) There's mostly no questions before I've had coffee or like when I've just woken up from a nap. Yeah, yeah. The nap time was very sacred and like you I think that you said it's okay if you make noise during nap time because I have earplugs but if there's you know an option not to have a Eurovision party during that time please don't yeah Yeah. um what are your personal rules for at home or what do you appreciate about living somewhere well I'm an untidy person and I am quite scatterbrained and I forget about things a lot but um I'm completely anally retentive when it comes to like bathrooms and kitchens and like Mm -hmm. shared space. Like I really think that if you're living in a share house with people, it's important to keep those things clean because they're the ones where I think that, um, uh, you know, there have been wars over, over dishes that have, you know, escalated in my lifetime that I just feel I'd never want to live again. (laughs) You know what I realized living alone, my thing I like to do is I will leave the dishes from the day And then in the morning when I'm boiling water for coffee, I do the dishes while I'm boiling the water for coffee. And so then by the time the coffee's ready, then the dishes are done and the house is clean. But if I have a roommate, I won't do that. Yeah. Because I would never want to leave them dishes because dishes breed dishes. Yes, they do. They do. I once lived in a share house in Canberra where um, my two housemates basically only did the dishes or any housework at all when um, we had a house inspection from the the landlord. Mm. And... That was pretty full on. There was one time when they went away for the weekend having had a dinner party that I didn't know about. I like woke up in the morning and there was like dishes everywhere and I, and it was like crazy hot and there's like, you know, pesto (laughs) stuck all over everything in the kitchen for two days. It was terrible. I wouldn't like that at all. No, no, it was bad. You like to listen to the radio. I do. And drink tea. Yeah. You're from Australia and you observe a tea time. Yes. Yes, tea time is very important. One must down pencils at tea time and enjoy the tea. Um, I um, I like to listen to the radio in the morning. Um, it's a habit I got into when I started studying journalism at university. And um, we had a news quiz every week where we had to answer questions on the week's news. And it was like, basically, if you didn't know enough of them, you were going to fail the whole unit. Mm-hmm. It was like about, it was like, to, I guess, to encourage observational skills. So I started obsessively listening to the radio every morning as soon as I woke up, because that was the best way for me to absorb headlines, you know, mm. like small chunks of like the important information. Um, and I still do it. I, I've been listening to the Rachel Maddow podcast. Oh, yeah. And it feels a little bit like that. Yeah. Well, because I have a hard time when I turn on NPR, Southern California's NPR. Sometimes it's like entertainment news. Mm. And I really am not mm. there for that. Mm. So listening to the Rachel Maddow podcast every day after she um, has it the night before, I feel like I'm knowing what I need to know. Well, yeah. I mean, like, 
I think that there's a, um, I mean, as a, as a, you know, media type, I have to tell you that you can only, you can't listen to just one source of news, one source of information. You need to listen to multiple. Rachel will give you, you know, some information on some things, but not all of them. What do you recommend? What are your favorite news sources? Oh. Is this fake news? Uh. Should we listen to Breitbart? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Don't listen. Don't do it. Don't poison your mind. Um, I think I listen to, I try to listen to things from different countries in particular, because I feel like that gives you a really good feeling of the news agenda around the world, not just in the country that you're living in. What? Yeah, I know. I know. Right. I'll never forget watching ABC news in the States years ago and like, you know, ABC world news. And I watched it every day for a week and there was not a single international story on that at all. And I was like, you can't call it world news if it's only about what's happening in America. That's ridiculous. I remember when world have your say came on NPR in portland it rocked my world well i've not heard that one what's it about what is it it's kind of stupid actually i mean the bbc is news hour is better yeah i guess yeah but world have your say was a call-in show where they would be talking about a hot issue but people from all around the world would call in and talk about their thoughts on this issue oh whatever it was that's really interesting yeah i mean it's kind of funny because, you know, coming, li- I'm living in Australia at the moment and, you know, we do cover the news that happens in the US quite a lot because it's important what happens in the United States. Um, you know, leadership, polit- the politics, you know, that sort of thing can impact on things that are happening around the world. So I can see that to a certain degree that everyone would have an opinion on whatever's going on in this country. Mm-hmm. Well, it was, I think it was like from, it was from the UK, it was a BBC show mm. and then people would call from... Just everywhere and be like, here's what I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Just from wherever. But you studied journalism. Yes. You were a journalist. Yes. And then you decided to be a cartoonist. Yes. You went to the Center for Cartoon Studies, and now you're a comics journalist editor? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I mean... I edit pieces of comics journalism. I edit all like all kinds of pieces and stuff, but it's my background in journalism that's actually really useful in the job that I do, like editing. Um, I actually the job I was doing when I came to the Center for Cartoon Studies was I was a breakfast news radio producer, so I had to come up with like fifteen stories every day that we were going to cover, um, and I had to like you know program the program you know like we when is this going to happen this interview is going to be here at this time and that's basically what i do for the nib as an editor there Mm. what do you think about uh my president my current president united states uh bemoaning all of journalism or saying that all of journalism is fake news or that people are being unfair to him or i mean because you've actually gone to school and taken classes in journalistic ethics and you understand that all journalists work under a certain set of principles and rules of objectivity and um so having like basically a huge dumbass say that like what is that i don't know i mean i really think that um i don't know if anyone saw john stewart's um uh uh, I don't know what you would call it, uh, monologue to the advice to journalists saying that this is like a, um, a great opportunity for journalists in America to break ties with the president. Because, I mean, I'm not going to lie, the US political media has like a very different relationship with the president than most other countries' press do with their political leaders. Hmm. Americans are far more respectful of their political leaders than other, con- other English-speaking countries are. Um, and uh, are less inclined to be critical in the way and confrontational in, in, you know, in conferences and stuff. And what's been really interesting about watching the stuff with Trump is that 
I think that journalists are more confrontational with him than they would be necessarily with other or have been with other presidents. But that's in part because he's not sticking to the script. He's not sticking to the scrap, to the, to the facts, you know? And I mean, you're as a journalist, you're taught to call that out. You know, Mm -hmm. if someone is telling you a lie, you're not supposed to just sit there and go, okay, I'll write that one down. I mean, that's what you do in a fascist dictatorship. It's not what you do in a democracy. You know, the idea of journalism as the fourth estate to, uh, you know, to hold power um, to to be accountable is, uh, you know, I think maybe, maybe the political press in America are actually a better job than they have been doing. You know, maybe the American press are going to be, I don't know, like, removed from feeling like they need to be respectful in a way that they haven't done before. And I think that could only be good for democracy. Um, In terms of criticisms of fake news, like, I mean, news sources get it wrong. Journalists get it wrong. um, But I think that uh, Trump just doesn't like people being critical of him. Yeah. He has no sense of humor about himself. No. It's very thin skin. So when the election first happened... I got together with some friends and we were like, how do we stop this? Because we have a lot of control over the world. You may not know this. Mm-hmm. I am a yeah, memoir, yeah. memoir cartoonist. So, you know, I have a lot of power over what happens in America. Um, but we were like, A, let's try to sway those electors. Mm. Didn't, didn't really happen for us. I thought it could. It seems like a cool idea. And then the other thing was um, we had this idea of like one of my friends said, you know, people cannot be compelled to commit war crimes just because the commander-in-chief told them to. So there's people, I mean, these people have swiftly been getting fired, but there's people that are career politicians or military people that have their own code of ethics that aren't going to commit war atrocities just because this person said so. So let's try to start a campaign of heartening our protectors, letting them know that if they turn on the president, that we will support them and have their back and that they are fulfilling the will of the people. And I was like, yeah. And then... The other thing we thought of was, I was like, you know, I know so many cartoonists that are not political cartoonists, but what if all of them started doing political cartoons at the same time? Surely some of those could go viral and we could influence culture in a way that could bring a lot of people on board with the same issues. Uh, That's kind of what you're doing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of what your job is right now. Yeah, that is what my job is. So will you explain what the nib is and what... What happens there? Uh, so the Nib is a website um, that publishes cartoons and comics that are nonfiction or political editorial cartoons. We do a lot of explainers about, you know, how things work or why things are. We do opinion pieces and we do, uh, yeah, like a lot of uh, critiques, editorial political critiques of um, politics. Mm. And you get cartoonists who sometimes are not necessarily journalistic cartoonists to do things for your site. Yeah. A lot of the cartoonists that we work with, we will only work with on one piece in the end. Like they've got one piece that they really want to do. Uh, that is in a style that they have never done before, which is nonfiction. Most cartoonists, uh, don't do nonfiction cartoons. So, uh, it's, a. It can be a really interesting process working with people because you're kind of like trying to run through, you're kind of giving, giving them a, like a mini journalism course at the same time. Well, as, that's, that's what I want to you ask know. you. Can you dumb down journalism for us? So if one of my <laughs> listeners is a cartoonist and they want to do a journalistic comic, like what do you tell people? 
Uh, I tell people mostly to try and adhere to the facts and do your research. Um, because the issues that we end up having with pieces and we have a legal team who go over everything and we try and fact check everything that we, that we put through. Sometimes we get some typos and the other day we got the population of South Dakota wrong. So like, I'm really sorry guys. We, we do screw up sometimes. Um, but if I'm giving people advice, it's to do, uh, to do your research, know what you're talking about. Uh, make sure that you double check things from multiple sources because uh, someone else might've gotten it wrong, you know? Uh, and when you're structuring things, if you're doing a proper journalism comic where you've gone out and conducted interviews, you kind of need to go into the interviews, having an idea of what you're trying to do, like what you're trying, how you're going to approach this, because otherwise you'll just end up with hours of tape and no idea about how to structure it as a piece. Mm. Like, should you have your opinions or your thesis before you go in and then try to get things that go along with that? No, that's not what I mean at all. Tell me what you mean. I, what I mean is if you're going to do... So, okay, so... I'll, I have reality show brain. Yeah. I'm like, you want the bachelorettes to get drunk <laughs> and say they want to sleep with the bachelor? Is that... So you have to go make that happen? I'm like, producer. Yeah. Okay. No. No, 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 no. So uh, what I would say is if you're going in to do a piece, you have to be open about how it's going to turn out, but you have to go in and listen while you're conducting the interviews. Like, it's not... Like, don't go in with a list of questions and then just ask those questions questions and wait for the answers like you're not gonna that's not a proper interview that's just you could just email someone that list Mm -hmm. um i would go go in with the intention of knowing that you're going to do a piece on a particular subject and that you want to cover these particular areas you know within that subject and try and talk to your you know interviewee about these particular things uh i think it's really good to keep parameters for yourself like be like i can't go here i can't go there because in cartoons, there aren't very many words. And really, most of the time, you're looking for just a few really pithy quotes from any individual. Mm-hmm. And the rest of it has to be built on your own research. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it also needs to be visual. This is like the most important thing. Don't pitch me a comic that has no visual, visual angle. Like, you need to have um, a reason why this is a comic and not a radio story or not a you know TV news story. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's... Not every idea or issue lends itself to be drawn. Uh, that's so interesting. I, it's hard to describe, and I take for granted, telling people about comics, here's your lesson in comics, everybody, is that it shouldn't be redundant. Your pictures should be telling a story that your words are not telling. You're not writing the words at the bottom of the panel. You're, I'm not showing you a drawing of a dog on a skateboard and then saying, the dog wrote a skateboard. Yeah. I need to say something extra, do something more. I need to enhance, add, or have like a weird juxtaposition with the image. Yeah. Yeah. Are there particular issues that you wish could be comics, but whenever people try, you're just like, it's not, this wasn't meant to be a comic? Um, Sometimes political stuff can be really hard. Um, Actually, an interesting one that we did was on um, voter uh, ID laws a while ago. Um, Andy Warner worked on this piece. And a year earlier... I had worked on the piece on the same subject and I was completely unable to do it as a, uh, as a visual piece. I couldn't figure out a way to make it interesting as a cartoon or how to break it down properly. But Andy, who is a graphic designer and is very knowledgeable about U.S. political process, one of my weak points is that I have, I mean, I have a degree in political science, um, but I specialise in Southeast Asian and Australian political history. So I'm pretty good at, like, world politics and I'm... <laughs> 
I'm just going to put this out there. I know I know more about American politics than many Americans do. I believe I'm, you. I'm technically American, also. I should state that. That's mm-hmm. like that's a true story. But I um uh I think that sometimes having a general knowledge about a particular subject is really useful to go into. Write what you know, you know. And if you don't know about something, that's the way you have to enter the piece is by saying I don't know. We did a piece of, uh, about Jill Stein, um, the pre- Greens presidential candidate, um, last year with Sarah Glidden. And Sarah basically went in like that, being like, I don't, I want to know more about this. And the piece was told from that perspective. You were telling me over dinner, we had burritos. And sangria. Mm. This is my first drunk interview. I'm not drunk, but I generally, I'm hyped up on coffee and that's it. <laughs> so if I start just burping into the tape, that's what's I'm, going on. I'm sorry. I'm such a terrible influence on you, Nicole. I was like, are you going to get sangria? Because I'll get sangria if you get sangria. And I had literally <laughs> won and now I'm like falling down. I'm not falling down. Drunk. Um, but we were talking over dinner about how you are starting to look for more pieces that are issue specific. And not news items specific, because comics take a billion years yeah. to complete. Yeah. And so if I was going to write something about a headline, I would not be able to make a seven-page comic about a headline in less than three weeks. No. No. I mean, every issue has a particular angle that you can take on it. Um, and it might not be the topic of the day or the news of the day, but uh, it's good, I think, to have um, different perspectives on issues that aren't going away. You know, issues about, you know, gender, issues about race, issues about, you know, equity and class in this country are like, you know, very, there's, there are different, there are so many different ways that stories in this, this can be told and it doesn't have to hang on a news item, but it is good to have it hang on something that people are talking about. Like I want it to be an issue that is, you know, of import. I don't want it to be, I don't want to cover things of issues that are only tangentially relatable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are there other things? I'm trying to remember. I had you tell some of my students your top tips oh, yeah. for people who wanted to make journalism comics or people who wanted to submit to the NIB. Is there any other advice that we haven't covered? Pet peeves that you have, things that you look for? Well, I mean, obviously there's like the real basics, which is um, demonstrated ability to write and draw. I would, You would be shocked at the number of people who pitch me stories who don't have any writing samples at all or, like, samples of comics that are, like, long form. You Like, people who are pitching to do, like, a really long piece who don't send in any examples of really long work that they've already done because they haven't done any. And I, you know, uh, I've now done enough of this work to know better than to try and start working with someone who's not written a piece before. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a... It's a big thing. In general, I think people aren't going to pay you to do something they haven't seen you do. Yeah. That's a general across the board, all kinds of things. Yeah. I'm like, I can illustrate a tractor. Well, would you mind including a drawing of a tractor with your sample? Yeah. Like, I'm like, here's like 20 pictures of dogs. I can't wait to draw a tractor for you. Like, (laughs) I just like, that doesn't give you an idea of what a tractor looks like. That shows you I can draw dogs. Yeah. But. Yeah. I think that um, people going into stuff thinking about like why an issue or a piece, why you want to do this, why is this interesting to you and is it interesting to other people? Mm-hmm. Because something that a lot of people I think, um, and I don't mean to be critical of you as an autobiographical cartoonist. What the hell is she about to say? 
sometimes you're just not an interesting person. And like sometimes people's interesting stories that they think about themselves are really, you know, fascinating and universally applicable are not necessarily so. But I'm so, I have a dog. (laughs) (laughs) I love to nap. Isn't that enough? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What what I'm looking for in people's, if people are sending in autobiographical stories, they need to be inherently interesting or they need to be universally relatable or ideally both. Um, And I think that there are a lot of stories out there like that. And, you know, we are seeking out stories from, you know, different minority groups at the moment, like trying to cover as much of, um, you know, the current status quo as we can from as many perspectives as we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that does involve telling people's personal stories. Like we last week published a um, piece by a Mormon missionary that was why, was called her why Jesus isn't a Republican or wasn't a Republican, you know, and that's the kind of story that many of our other cartoonists could not have done. You know, this had to be this, this, this perspective had to be given by someone who is within the, you know, the conser- a conservative Christian group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's the kind of, semi-autobiographical or like personal essay type piece that we're interested in Mm. i can't panyo and i can't wait to submit some things (laughs) we can't wait we love to nap and we're here to talk about it this is my journalism um wait what was i going to ask you i was going to ask you something but i got so shaken by you calling out autobiographical cartoons (laughs) i'm sorry what was i gonna say what was i gonna say (laughs) oh do you have tips for how to receive edits you have to edit people. I do. And in general, cartoonists are not used to being edited. No. They will get precious about their work. They will spend really long being precious with the page. And if anyone has anything to say about it, they're like, what? They just can't believe it. I have the benefit of having a literary publisher. They can't edit images, really, to save their life. Like, they just don't. But they edit the words. And I feel like that's an incredible benefit. Because no other, no comics publishers really take you to task about story, as far as I can tell. Mm. From people I've talked to that work with comics publishers. But I know you edit people, and then cartoonists are like aghast yep. that that's happening to them. Yep. They feel traumatized. Yep. What is your advice for the precious cartoonist when receiving edits? When you go to journalism school, you're taught that your, um, your opinion is not worth anything until you've proven yourself already. And I think that that stands when it comes to uh, cartooning. You know, I care about, like, you know, perspectives of certain cartoonists who've spent a lot of time working on a particular subject, um, and that's good. But, uh, you know, sometimes your the way that you look at a piece is not the way that everybody else is going to look at a piece, particularly if you've been immersed in the research for, on that or it's a story about you. Um, that can be really hard. Uh, I think that the best thing, the way to look at it is to understand that your editor is not trying to make your piece worse. Like they are actually trying to make it better. And you have to appreciate that they have read literally hundreds of comics. Um, and this is their professional job. And um, I think that I've been swayed by a cartoonist saying to me, no, I can't change this or I you know, have to keep this this particular way because of these reasons. But if they can't, if someone can't explain to me why something has to be a particular way or then, you know, not able to give a reason, like a reasonable explanation for something, then I feel like you need, they need to understand that, you know, a lot of the time it's about cutting things down as well. Like, you know, people have a very short attention span on the internet and we are talking about the internet. 
And when with comics, you know, you need to suck people in by the third panel. If someone is reading your cartoon and they are bored by the third panel or they don't know what it's about, then that's, you know, it's not going to work out. And a lot of what I'm doing is trying to get the opening of a piece to be appealing enough to get people to commit to reading the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just telling you about a pro-life comic I read that sucked me in. It had an incredible opening. It talked about this woman getting dismembered. I was like, oh my God. And the perpetrators never went to jail. It was because it was about abortion, which is not really the kind of comic I would normally read, but I was sucked in. Yeah. Yeah. It had a strong opener. Yeah. And I, I like that idea. Can people apply that to all their comics? Like, wouldn't that be incredible? You know, even autobiographical comics, even navel gazing mm. kind of memoir comics or adventure comics. Can you make something incredible happen by the third panel? Yeah, I mean, it's a good challenge. I think that sometimes it depends what kind of piece you're trying to put together. You know, like what is going to work for a piece online is not necessarily going to work for a book. Um, Mm -hmm. But one thing that's really important about what we're doing is that um, most of our readers are on mobile phones. They're reading the comics on their phone screen. It's like 70% of our cartoons are read on phones. So when you're designing a comic, when you're trying to suck people in by that third panel, like that third panel needs to be totally like readable the size of a phone screen. Like it's like a really short amount of time and a really tiny image space, you know, like it's a different, it's a different medium. That's a really important lesson. I think in designing comics is designing for your medium, the platform that you're using. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really powerful point. I did comics for a little bit for a dog magazine. My comic was called Muttley Crew. It was a weekly dog comic, and it was one panel. And those look so crazy different and colorful and flat and bold and bigger than anything else that I do in my day-to-day life for print because they're never meant to be printed. Ah. Anyway, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit also about professionalism because you were a student at the Center for Cartoon Studies, and you always stuck out to me as somebody who... You were like trying to suck the marrow out of the experience, get as much as you could. You were really hardworking. You know, you were really smart and engaged and trying to go one step further. And I feel like both of us have seen people like that and wanted to keep them around in the future when you have, we you know, so when I have projects in mind, I think about people like that mm. to refer, to refer um, people to them for projects, for illustration jobs or for production assistant jobs or just for anything. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What are your what are your personal either pet peeves or things that you really think about as far as professionalism goes? Or what have you learned? Um, I think that people doing stuff in the time, you know, in a, within deadlines is really important for that. Um, nothing makes you look less professional than handing something in really late. Um, and also um, the standard to which you complete a task doesn't matter what the task is like the task might seem mundane to you but it might be really important to someone else if we're talking about interns or like even just people you're observing in their work life uh i have worked with people who have not done things to the best of their abilities and i know that i don't always do it to the best of my abilities but you need to be able to do it to the best of what you can do it in the time frame that you have um, and handing something in that's like clearly falls far below either of those two standards is not going to get you anywhere. Mm. Is it better to say I can't do this than to try and turn in something that's half-assed? Way better. One thing that's really important for me is that I have 
we publish like more than a hundred cartoons a month. Um, and I'm managing a schedule of all of those cartoons and I'm working on more than 50 long form pieces at any given point in time. So if you're going to be late, just like people just need to tell you, they need to say, you know, how, how late they think they're going to be. Um, because it might not matter, you know, it's not going to, if you're going to be late anyway, if there's nothing you can do about it, if you've reached the point of no return, Mm -hmm. then there's absolutely no point not telling someone because all you're going, all you're doing is withholding information that might help them make a better judgment and might see you in a particular, in a a more favorable light, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's huge. It's hard for people because they feel shameful or like they should be able to get it done in time, Mm -hmm. even though it's not happening. Oh Yeah. I mean, I just pulled out of Cake in Chicago today, um, the festival, because I realized that I can't get the books together that I would need to do to sell at that particular convention um, because I'm focusing on my work as uh, the deputy editor of the Nib um, for this month. Um, I like, it's just not possible. And I think that that's, that's better. I feel bad because I left that very last minute. That was unprofessional of me. I should have, you know, Mm -hmm. if the organizers of cake are listening to this, I'm really sorry guys. (laughs) Um, but that it's better for me to do that now than to like a week before the show, try and pull out because I haven't got enough stuff, you know, or I haven't made enough books. Like that's way more unprofessional than just like pulling the pin straight away. You know, my professional pet peeve is when I'm when people know you kind of and so then they feel like they don't have to be professional and like I've had times where I'm interviewing people for a job and if we're already familiar with each other they won't they won't take the interview as seriously or treat the question seriously or they'll be overly casual in a way where they're not actually showing me their work stuff yeah their professional stuff and I'm just like I just you can't drop it like you have to, if you're looking for a job with someone, even if you know them, you have to bring your best. Yeah. You can't put your feet up on the desk and be like, you guys know me. Yeah. No, I mean, that's like, a, I mean, there's levels of professionalism in your uh, personal presentation and the way that you behave around people that, I mean, you just have to do, it doesn't matter who the person is you're interacting with. I get really frustrated with um we have a ske- we usually give people a schedule for like longer pieces like a, you know different deadlines for thumbnails and pencils and stuff and I know when people have missed their deadlines and people try and like make out to me like oh you know didn't think it would be a big deal just like you know sending you two pages of what I owe you today and I'm like no that's not it's not really how it works you know you that doesn't look good. <laughs> like, take what I do seriously. Yeah. Because it's serious to me. Yeah. Even if you know me and it's comics or whatever, yeah. it's a serious thing. Yeah. It's one of the dangers of working in an industry that's very small and you end up knowing a lot of people, you know, like, here we are sitting here, you and I, Nicole, and we were once roommates, you know, like. <laughs> but I kept a nice professional distance in the morning, real icy, real grouchy. <laughs> And look at us now. Yeah. You didn't complain about me listening to the BBC. I don't even care. Yeah, you listen to whatever you want. Ponyo, Ponyo was there. Yeah. Ponyo was the best housemate I've ever had. And so now, you know, she's your podcast producer. She's checking the levels. She's wearing her headphones. and Yeah. <laughs> Laying back. But that, that really is one of my biggest pet peeves. I don't know where that just came from. It's because I'm so drunk. Um, no, but I, I thought about... Just different times where people get overly casual in a way where I'm like, it's not time for that. Yeah. If we're at a bar or something or at a restaurant and you don't want a job for me, that would be a great time to do that. Yeah. But 
I have to admit Australians are very guilty of particular types of behaviour that Americans might see as being unprofessional. Like what? Oh, I've gotten, I mean, like I've had moments where I know that in work contexts I've said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing and I've not realised that, and it's a cultural difference, you know, like Australians are a lot more casual in language Mm -hmm. and much less hierarchical than Americans are, you know, like we don't treat, um, which is interesting because we, you know, like that's the way that when I think about the way the Australian media covers politics and the way that American media covers politics, those are very stark contrasts where... Australians just aren't very respectful of political leaders and and they're more casual, I think, in workplaces. And there's that whole sense of, you know, it'll be okay. Like, don't worry about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that Americans stress a lot more about that stuff. And I don't think that – I think that I may have in my – Oh, this is very confessional of me. I'm like telling you guys all my faults. Um, I like, I think I've definitely been too casual in conversations with people and not realized that, you know, it was, you know, and un- it would be perceived as being unprofessional. You got to keep it tight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you have to apologize later or how do you realize that you were too casual? Oh, okay. So years and years ago, when I was like 22, I was working at um, a research institute in Seattle and I um, called my boss a bastard. Uh, because he had uh, not told me that I was to have a three-day weekend that weekend. Um, I just didn't know. It was a stupid thing. Anyway, I was mad at him, and I said, you bastard, and he was really horrified and, like, pulled me aside and was like, you know, I would not have, you know, tolerated words like that from, you know, another, like, you know, member of staff, but we'll write this off as a cultural misunderstanding. Did you call him a cunt? Yeah. 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 This is a guy who said the word F word. He would say F word in, um, you know, with, with the, the, no, 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 no. Like he would fuck with, um, but he would, he wouldn't, he would say the F word. Like he wouldn't say, he was, he would never say fuck. And he would always use the air quotes. Air quotes. Yeah. He'd be like, what the F word? Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to ask you. We've gone through so many things. What does he think it takes to be a good roommate? Oh, this is a trick question, Nicole. I think that what takes to be a good roommate is just being considerate of other people in public spaces. I liked that you called me non-invasive as a roommate. (laughs) We're very (laughs) non-invasive. I'm not invasive because I basically want to pretend like no one else there exists. So I'm really not, I'm not invading their space because I'm pretending like I'm alone. Yeah. Yeah. And you do that by listening to Taylor Swift at extreme volume in your headphones while wearing sweatpants and roasting kale. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like the dream? That's nice. Okay. So being considerate of other people in spaces. Yeah. And also, like, realizing that everyone in your house is also a human being and that, like, you know, being ni- nice to them, like, being kind. Like, it's one thing to be, like, in the morning you're sort of feeling a bit rough, but, like, it's another thing to, like, just not understand that other people in your space are also going through their own lives, you know, yeah. and that it might not just all be about how you're feeling about the towels on the floor in the bathroom. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.